Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. Story Shapers, we're back with another wonderful episode and this one is a very special one to Susan and myself. Um, when we set up Story Shaped, it was with the intention of bringing the beauty and brilliance and importance of children's books to as wide an audience as we could. We wanted to share our love for the jewels of children's literature that had been and that continue to be so influential over our lives and share our conviction that it is the stories we read as children which have the most power to shape us, to form our minds and hearts and values, to turn us, in short, into the sorts of people we become. We're all shaped by stories and the story of our life as we live it continues to shape us all the way through until, like all stories, it comes to an end. Today's guest is someone who we feel fairly certain will agree with us on all these points, as he is a writer who regularly uses his platform to shout about just these same issues, about access to stories for all children, about allowing child readers the freedom to choose the stories they read, and who seems to believe as strongly as we do that stories are the primary shapers of our lives. He is S.F. Said, the award-winning author of The Gripping Adventures of a Heroic Street Cat, Varjak Paw, and its sequel, The Outlaw of Varjak Paw, the stunning science fiction story Phoenix, and the incredible, genre-defying, mind-expanding masterpiece that is Tiger, which was published last year after almost a decade in the writing. All his books have been illustrated by the brilliant Dave McKean, whose art complements the story so perfectly. S.F. was born in Beirut in Lebanon and has lived almost all his life in Britain. As well as writing brilliant books for young readers, SF has written extensively about children's books for a variety of publications and has served on judging panels for several prestigious children's book prizes. And he's no stranger to sitting in the hot seat on podcasts, including Backlisted and Down the Rabbit Hole, which we highly recommend. We are honoured beyond words to talk to SF today to find out about the stories that shaped him and to discuss our shared passion, Books for Children. So SF Said, welcome to Story Shaped. It's an absolute honour to speak to you today. Welcome. It's an absolute honour to be here today. (laughs) It's, I think, the crowning jewel of our podcast so far. As soon as we set it up, we said we have to get SF Saeed on to talk to us. And uh, it's amazing to finally have you, um, because I know from following you on social media, as I have done for the last good few years now, that you're such a passionate advocate of of children's literature and of the availability of of good books to all readers um, and and, and of bringing books to readers and bringing readers to books. Um, And I just want to say thank you, first of all, for that, for all the advocacy work you do and for all the effort that you put in to uh, to, you know, to to bringing children literature to to as many readers as possible, Um, as well as your fantastic stories that you've created yourself. uh, You're you're a very inspirational person to follow. So thank you so much for all that. Um, It's wonderful to have you. So kind. I mean, it's um... It's just what I believe, you know, it's not really an effort. Um, I really do believe the stories I loved when I was young shaped me at the very deepest levels, as we'll be talking about today and mm-hmm. uh, and changed my life, you know, and I, I constantly see this visiting schools as a children's author. They do change lives all the time, every day. Uh, so, yeah, I, I couldn't be happier. Uh 
going on about my love of children's books and how vital and life-changing they are because it's just what I believe. Excellent. Well, I suppose we don't even need to ask you the question, SF Saeed, are you story shaped? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what other shape I would be. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I suppose we always kind of ask people to, can you cast your mind back to the, maybe the first stories that you ever remember uh, encountering, you know, whether it was in a library or whether it was at home or, or talk us through that. Yeah. So not only the first story that I can remember coming up, but my very first memory of anything at all, ever, <gasps> very, very first memory is a memory of a story. So I was about three years old. And my uncle was reading me The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss. Thank good. Amazing. I loved The Cat in the Hat. I thought it was brilliant. I wanted the cat to come to my house and <laughs> everything else. And I just sort of fell in love with stories and books at that moment because it seemed like anything you could imagine was allowed. If it was in a story or in a book, you know, anything. Which for a child, what, what a revelation, you know. And um, my uncle was only... 10 years older than me uh so you know he was 13 so I think he probably wanted the cat to come and smash everything up too you know <laughs> uh, and and this I, I often kind of when I'm talking particularly to teachers you know I kind of point out this was not meant to be any kind of educational experience this was just fun we were sharing the story because it was a lot of fun and um I I think that's the single most important thing I know about about reading is it should be fun it should be pleasurable you know and uh, the thrill of meeting the cat in the hat at the age of three <laughs> certainly changed my life. You know, um, it's that's how I've always felt about stories that anything you can imagine is possible in a story. And what a thing, you know. What do you think the cat in the hat gave you? Permission. Permission. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I think also that if I'm being more serious about it, I guess the cat in the hat shows you that, uh, well, in the cat's words, it is fun to have fun, but you have to know how. So, <laughs> yeah, the cat does smash everything up. But then before the parents come back, everything gets tidied up. So when the parents come in, they have no idea. Uh, the kids are like <laughs> trembling. But it's, you know, uh, so I guess that 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 kind of teaches you quite a lot about life and, and how you might live it. You know that, yeah, you can do anything, um, but it might have consequences, too uh I, those are pretty big ideas to give a mm. three-year-old I mean it, it never um, ceases to amaze me how how deep concepts can be you know that 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 are in children's books and mm. that can be conveyed in in such you know in such simple language perhaps sometimes and in such simple illustrations but they get across such amazing ideas um that's that's no 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 exception there it's, it's a fantastic book and I love The Cat and the Hat I love Dr Seuss uh, yeah sets you up for life The Cat and the Hat absolutely it does <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I mean, there, there is, I think, quite a radical idea of freedom in the cat, yeah. you know, um, and I think Dr. Seuss was also a political cartoonist as well as doing children's books. Uh, maybe a little bit like Press Riddell today, who does um, cartoons, political cartoons for The Observer. Um, he, he did that in his day and he was a noted anti-authoritarian, you know, who really did believe people should have the freedom to, to to do whatever they wanted to do you know so um I think ideas like that they are huge um but there there it is in a book that you can read in five minutes you know and um but it stayed with me all my life and um whenever I reread the cat and the hat I still feel 
um, at the age of 56 now, uh, <laughs> you know, that sense of freedom um, that attacks like that can give you. Um, another one that had a really, really big impact on me and certainly shaped me at the deepest levels uh, is The Little Prince by Wanda mm. Saint-Exupéry, which I read um, in English translation, translated by Catherine Woods. So that was my mum's favourite book. Uh, she would read me The Little Prince every night. Um, and I just, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I remember one night, I think around the age of like five, um, I just knew what those marks on the page were. Um, you know, I, I, I knew the whole book and, I, you know, I'd kind of learned how to read just by reading this thing with my mum. So it certainly is a book that taught me to read. But like The Cat in the Hat, I think it kind of taught me to think, because, again, The Little Prince is a book that I think is really quite political, you know, and, and philosophical. And it, it, it sort of wants you to question everything. It wants you to accept nothing at face value. You know, it's constantly flipping your expectations about stuff um right from the very first image which i think appears to be a hat but turns mm -hmm. out to be what is it an elephant swallowing a boa constrictor, boa constrictor yeah, yeah. Or, or the yeah. orange boa constrictor swallowing an elephant <laughs> yeah that's yeah. right yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah it's a it's a book that um completely uh gives the reader freedom which I, I think, again, is is such a, a powerful thing that who, whoever you are, however old you are, you mm. know, you got to figure stuff out for yourself. Uh, don't accept what the grown-ups are telling you, you know, figure it out for yourself. Um, and that certainly is something I've lived by. Um, I remember many years later studying politics, uh, reading John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, um, which is a book that argues very strongly that liberty is built on the foundation of questioning everything and taking nothing at face value. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's all in the little print. Yeah, I know <laughs> this. <laughs> Come on, Mill, tell me something. I... <laughs> Follow yeah. that to me, yeah. Yeah, I, so... I love The Little Prince as well. It's, it's, I think, one of the books that made me into an author. Um, certainly it's a book that, you know, I, I the first thing I ever wrote was my own version of a sequel to The Little Prince when oh, I was wow. about seven or eight. Yeah, I loved yeah. it. And I did my own illustrations as well. Do you still have that, that tonight? No, I lost it years ago, oh. or it's been it's been lost. I can't find it. But um, what what happened in the sequel? I still remember. Basically, it, it, the, the little prince came back to earth. You know, the end the end of the little prince. Yeah, you know, yeah. He the, the narrator finishes it by saying, "If ever you see this little boy wandering in the desert, you know, make, make sure and come and tell me." So that was what I had decided. He would oh. come back to earth, and we would go, you know we would go and find the 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 pilot and and tell him his friend had returned. And oh. I think I ran out of plot about about page four. I didn't really have a plot, <laughs> but I just wanted. To, I just wanted to create a story. It was first the first thing that really made me inspired to create something myself, even though I was using characters that had pre-existed. But um, but I just I love that. And I the, the the central image of the opening pages, as you're saying, you know, the hat that is really an elephant inside a boa constrictor, it just it turned my head inside out. You know, the the world is so full of amazing, you know, things that if you if you look at them properly, you see the full potential of, of how amazing they truly are. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a life changing book for me as well. I love that. I love that that it had an influence on you too. At such a year, an early age, it's it's an amazing story. It's a yeah. huge one, isn't it? And, yeah. and I think that thing of of really looking, you know, mm. that's something you can never be 
too old like to be reminded of you know sometimes yeah. as as I go about the world I, I'm kind of in a bit of an autopilot mode and you don't really look at stuff you're just trying to get where you're going but if I ever just slow down stop just actually really open my senses mm -hmm. to the world it's a mind-blowing thing you know yeah. <laughs> being alive is incredible you know absolutely um, yeah. Blake has a Blake describes it as fourfold vision doesn't he yeah, so this I I yeah uh, I've never completely got my head around the the twofold, threefold, fourfold, uh, all the vision. Uh, there are <laughs> levels and levels of Blake, but what the thing that's really stuck with me from Blake is that doors of perception thing. Mm -hmm. If the doors of perception were open, we would see the world as it truly is infinite. You know, and I I think that's absolutely right. You know, right now as I'm talking, I'm looking out the window of my study and the sunlight is all over the the trees and you know, I can see the grain on the, the wood and it's, you know, you could just dive right into that. And all of that, I think, you know, is sort of there in the little prince, you know, um and obviously in, in William Blake and many other mm -hmm. things. And Hopefully it's also there in things like Tiger and Varjak Poor and, you know, because I think mm -hmm. that's one of the most important things I would like to pass on to a reader is, you know, experience it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, and we very seldom let ourselves do that because there's so much else that we feel we have to do. But just perceiving and experiencing the world is is extraordinary and should shouldn't be taken for granted, you know. And whenever I speak to children as well, I always use this thing. I, I call it my my ABC and it stands for always be curious, you know, and I, I always try to encourage kids to do exactly what we're talking about here to sort of stop and take in the details of everything they're seeing or whatever senses they have at their disposal, you know, to, to use them as fully as possible to sort of to, I suppose, to cultivate their own curiosity. Um, And do you find maybe that this this tendency you have as well to sort of you know soak up the world does that give you is that where you draw inspiration or, or would you get ideas from from that yeah sometimes but I mean sometimes it's just experiential you know there's no mm. thinking uh I think sometimes thinking gets in the way of stuff you know <laughs> um the less I can think the better <laughs> um I certainly feel that with writing actually the, the more I write the more I, I come to feel actually my job is to just get out the way mm. um, that's so hard it is really hard isn't it you know you kind of want to control it and be mm. on top of it and make sure it's all okay but the more you do that actually the the worse <laughs> the results <laughs> tend to be at least in my case and the more I can kind of be more or less unconscious when I'm doing it somehow the better it comes out so yeah, it's hard to trust yourself and, and let mm. yourself do that but I think the more you can do that the better so yeah thinking nah it's rubbish <laughs> forget about it <laughs> were you a storyteller from an early age uh, I think I was. Um, I'm relying here on the kind of memories of, of people who are around me because I don't particularly remember doing this, but apparently, yeah, more or less from the beginning, you know, like in the bath, I would be telling my mum or my grandma some kind of story about dolphins and whales or something, you know. Uh, apparently I had some just ongoing narrative series that I used to revisit. I don't remember doing that, but apparently I did. Um, I certainly remember um, doing a lot of comics. Um, so I loved comics and I used to kind of make my own. They, they weren't very good. Um, but I love doing it, and I think that's all that really matters. Um, what were and, your favorite comic comics? Well, I was very much a, a child of Marvel comics. I kind of grew up on the Marvel comics, really. But I also, yeah, also things like um, Asterix, 
um, Tintin, you know, the the great European kind of comics. Uh, the Snoopy Peanuts, Charles M. Schultz. I just loved that. Mad Magazine, I used to really like when I was a kid. Um, a bit later, Calvin and Hobbes. Um, mm. Yeah, so lots and lots. But I mean, my kind of weekly thing was the Marvel comics. You know, I would be down the news agent getting the new Spider-Man or whatever it might be <laughs> and Black Panther. You know, I just love that stuff. I couldn't get enough of it. Um, and I think it's notable when I look at the stories I write, you know, and people say, what do these have in common? You know, um, in every single book, characters discover that they have strange powers inside them <laughs> that they have to learn how to use. And that process of learning how to use the powers is almost the whole story. And sometimes it's really hard for them. Actually having these powers doesn't make their lives easier. It's actually more difficult. And mm -hmm. I, I just draw a very direct line from that back to the kind of comics I, I loved as a kid that that seems to be the narrative I reproduce again and again. <laughs> Not conscious. I never say, oh, okay, okay, I'm going to do another story. Okay, it's going to be a cat with powers. Oh, all right, it's going to be an alien <laughs> with powers. No, like that. it just sort of happens. Um, and uh, I guess in some ways what, what you put into your head is what comes out, you know, if you read exactly. it. Superhero mm -hmm. stories as a kid, you're probably going to start giving your characters powers when you're <laughs> trying to make your own stories. So, yeah, I guess the other big influence, I think, um, which I don't think we necessarily talk about enough, is is moving image culture, movies, mm -hmm. TV, you mm -hmm. know, um, cartoons. You know, um, I was a massive Star Trek fan as a kid. You know, uh, I. I my one really big kind of like I have to do this was to watch Star Trek on TV when I got home from school. It was, you know, the most important event of the week was to watch Star Trek. And then when Star Wars appeared, so I was 10 years old when the very first Star Wars oh, perfect. released. Yeah, yeah. What 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 good fortune, you know, to encounter that. I mean, yeah, they now call that episode four. But mm. for anybody out there who's not as old as I am, there were no episodes <laughs> Yeah, it was called Star Wars back then, and that completely blew my mind and the minds of all my friends. And I did start making my own stories kind of in, you know, a bit like your uh, Little Prince sequels. You know, I wrote Star Trek stories uh, and I put all my friends in as characters. <laughs> you know, Brilliant. Kind of entertain them, you know, so I'd write the story and then I might read it to people in break time and uh, <laughs> this sense that people wanted to know what was going to happen next, you know, was really exciting to me or they might laugh at one of your jokes. Oh, amazing. <laughs> so, um, so I guess that's, that's probably the first time I can remember really deliberately sharing a story with an audience um it was very much what we would now call fanfic you know mm. it was star trek stories with my mates as characters um but that's uh, brilliant training it's like the best yeah. training for a children's writer for yeah, any writer i think it is and you know um sometimes kids on school visits will say things like you know are you going to do another phoenix book you know and uh and I'm like, well, I, I don't have any plans to do that. But honestly, if you wanted another one, I would be completely honoured and thrilled if you were to write your own yourself. You know, some of the first stories I ever wrote were based on things I loved. And if you've enjoyed Phoenix, 
knock yourself out, you know, mm. write a story, set before it, set after it, set off on the side, take one of the characters, find out what they do next, you know, do whatever you like with it. And uh, I don't feel that um, anybody involved in Star Trek ever gave me permission to do that, but I felt it was okay to do that. And I, I, I understand that, you know, they were aware, actually, lots and lots of people were doing this, um, that there ended up being a massive industry in you know, uh, Star Trek and Star Wars novelizations <laughs> and spin-offs. And um, I think when I was a kid, it probably was my dream to write a Star Trek book, but there weren't many of them in those days. So I never really thought that was possible. But I do know other writers who actually do that for a living. And I think, oh, wow, no, they got it right. <laughs> I mean, what a thing. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, where does writing come from you know it comes from reading uh mm -hmm. and watching you know i'm always saying that really a writer is nothing more than a reader who takes one more step and begins to write stories they would like to read themselves that is all i do i think that's all any of us do really mm -hmm. so it's not surprising maybe that your first stories would be kind of continuations or spin-offs from things that you've loved how else would you begin thank you and I, I love that you brought up movies and TV because we do we do talk about that on the podcast sometimes. Um, you know, we don't when we say stories, we don't always necessarily mean written down stories in books. People talk about their story of their family. They talk about stories that they were told, you know, after grandmother's knee or whatever. Um, and often people do talk about movies and TV. And I think um, Susan and I were both kids in the in the 80s, I suppose, you know, when TV was and movies were, you know, I think they shaped me so much, almost as much as the books I read, because they were so such, such classics of fantasy. Um, Willow and, and Labyrinth. Willow and, and Labyrinth, Labyrinth story, and all, all of these those. wonderful films that I loved so much. And my brother and I watched Return them to endlessly. Return to Oz, which frightened me quite a lot, but it was still very influential. Um, so sometimes I wonder, is there such a kind of an, ups an upsurge of fantastically talented children's authors at the moment because we all grew up at a similar time and we were all shaped and formed by the same kind of visual culture you know the, the movies and tv that uh, really inspired me um I, I i don't know if that's true or not but certainly it's it's, it's a really powerful thing and uh, movies and tv definitely are, are a, a story shaping power uh, that we love to talk about here so i love and star trek and star wars are two of my top favorites <laughs> can i ask about what was it about star trek that really drew you mm. I mean, lots and lots and lots of things, um, you know, from the opening narration and music and the mm. twinkling stars, you just immediately felt magic is happening here. You Absolutely. know, but I guess I guess. Looking back, I think the presence of characters like Spock, you know, mm. just absolutely fascinating as somebody, you know, from a migrant background. You know, my family's originally from the Middle East and the wider Muslim world. I came to live in Britain when I was two. So I don't remember living anywhere else, but I do have this background. My name is Arabic and totally impossible to pronounce if you don't speak Arabic, which is why he's initials. So I guess the idea of Spock as this kind of, you know, he's he's half Vulcan. And there he is, you know, like a very senior member of Starfleet on the bridge, you know. Um, that's kind of awesome, you know. And and then You've got Ahura and you've got Sulu and you've got Chekhov and it mm. seems to be actually a, a much uh, more advanced world than the world we live in in many ways. And I just I just loved being in the world in the world. It was just a wonderful world. You know, um, 
I've rewatched original Star Trek quite a few times since then. I then loved Next Generation and Deep Space Nine and <laughs> on into like Discovery, you know, um, now. And I, I think Star Trek has always had what, what for me are, are very kind of welcoming and inclusive political values. I, I kind of really love that about it, that there's, it's a show in all its iterations that tries to make space for everyone, you know, whoever you are, I think there is space for you. So it is interesting, I guess, looking back that I felt there was even space for me to make my own and put my friends in, you know, it is for everyone. I, I kind of, I really love that about it. Um, so it did give you it did give you permission yeah I, to write. I, I, yeah, yeah. it allowed you into that space yeah and it is interesting how many other writers have have, have cited that as well mm. um i know when um leonard nimoy died i remember mm. seeing a lot of children's writers talking about how spock was a, a really big yeah. deal i remember mallory blackman talking about it it was you know a lot of a lot of us felt there's there's something going on there that that we just feel part of it somehow you know um i think yeah as an adult i can talk about you know look at these interesting performance styles and i love the use mm -hmm. of primary colors like it's obviously going to appeal to a kid it's so colorful and you know but i think as a kid i just felt like i kind of belonged in that world you know i just wanted to be in it and they felt like kind of my friends in a way even though it's sort of odd you know they're they're, they're all adults aren't they you know there's not actually a lot of kids in star trek um and yet, as a kid, I very much felt like I, I belonged on the Enterprise. You know, yeah, yeah. I didn't need a Wesley Crusher to make me feel like I could. Actually, I kind of hated Wesley Crusher. Yeah, in that I, I don't think he was very popular with most people. <laughs> Terrible. Although I do really Jake, Jake Sisko in Deep Space Nine. I think he's brilliant. He's everything mm. Wesley should have been. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> but you can have a, a kid, and it's fine. Nog is very good as well. The first Ferengi to become a Starfleet officer. Anyway, I, I'm sorry, I'm revealing awful um, nerdery here, but uh, that's uh, what we're about here on we're, this you're, podcast. You're among we're friends about, here. Yeah, safe space for nerdery. Absolutely, <laughs> we are. We are a nerd-friendly zone for sure. It's so, amazing. are you are you a big rewatcher and rereader? Do you have comfort? Watching typically, typically not. Typically not. No. Normally, I'm actually quite a slow reader so i like to try and spend my time as much as possible reading new stuff but i have a kind of a small core of you know uh sort of really important books um among which you know i would include say the little prince and, and some others that i do reread every so often um so i think that the big one that I probably talk about more than any other is Watership, Watership Down. Down. I was going to. But, I wonder when we're going to get to Watership Down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's amazing. I've not managed to mention it. Yet. <laughs> um, Half an hour in. <laughs> I know. I'm mean, always sort of going chronologically, and and so those things are, are sort of maybe a bit before. So Watership Down. I think I'm. I was about eight by this point. My mum presents me with this 500-page-long book with a picture of a rabbit on the cover. I really really had my doubts but i was <laughs> completely grabbed from page one i couldn't put the thing down until i'd finished it um it's that book completely it felt like it just reprogrammed my brain you know it kind of love that. Took, took me over at a very deep level mm -hmm. um and you know on one level very very thrilling and exciting page turning adventure story about these rabbits trying to survive in the wild and they're just tiny little rabbits 
and everything out there seems to be bigger and stronger and it's all coming to get them i mean it couldn't be more dramatic and life and death mm -hmm. but on the other hand there's all this other stuff going on in watership down and looking back i cannot help but feel that probably the thing that really stood out to me the most about it is that well the rabbits have this mythology they tell each other these these tales and myths um and the great hero of their myths is called el ahrera and this to me as a kid looked an awful lot like arabic mm -hmm. uh and kind of a bit like my name and i was like wow i've never seen this before arabic in a book you know it's like when i was a kid identities like mine were not represented in children's literature it just didn't happen so to see this it's not just any rabbit this is the greatest rabbit who ever lived and he mm -hmm. might be a bit like you oh wow you know i just i didn't think any of that consciously i think i just thought i love el ahera you know what i mean mm -hmm. um and i think that kind of was the only or certainly the first time i i I can remember sort of this experience people have talked about quite a lot recently of sort of seeing yourself reflected mm. in some way in a book. My name until then had been nothing but a source of trouble to me in Britain mm. because nobody could pronounce it. So, you know, what is that? You know, the sounds don't even exist in English. So, you know, what's your name inevitably leads on to, well, where, where are you from? No, no, where are you really from? And maybe why don't you go back there? You know, it, it, it always goes somewhere problematic. And, suddenly there I am seeing this kind of Arabic name in a book associated with the greatest rabbit who ever lived. And meanwhile, I am so thrilled by the book that this is obviously the greatest book I've ever read. It's like like properly life-changing. Um, the first time I reread Watership Down, I think I was about 35. I just finished writing mm -hmm. Bajak Paul. Um, I hadn't looked at Watership Down since then. And I think until then I hadn't really reread anything. Um, but the experience of rereading Watership Down at 35 was so mind-blowing that I then did begin looking at my my childhood favourites again. Um, and yeah, there are so many things I, I, I could tell you about that I feel like that book shaped inside me. You know, I really mm -hmm. do feel that at some very deep level, it 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 shaped the way I see the world and, you know... I've talked about this with Cat in the Hat and Little Prince, but I think if somehow it's deeper with Watership Down. Mm. I, I'm not really sure why. Maybe it's partly because of this kind of identity question. But if I think about what I write, again, there's always some kind of mythology behind the story. There's always mm. some kind of past thing that intertwines with the action in the present in my stories. It's, again, not a choice. It's just <laughs> what I always do. And I was looking at Watership Down at 35, having just reproduced that structure exactly in Barjack for without being aware of it and going, oh, my goodness, actually, everything I've just written, Richard Adams wrote, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> in that book. And mm. I, I felt like I owed him a debt I could never repay. You know, there's so there's a dog in Barjack Paul called Cludge, which I thought was just this made up thing trying to kind of come out with a name that sounded a bit like a dog barking. Mm -hmm. Oh no, there it is in Watership Down. The word cludge is actually in the book. You know, there's a, there's a rabbit called Holly. You know, Holly is probably the second biggest character in Valjack Paul. You know, there's so many things uh, that I feel actually embarrassed to kind of admit that it's all there in this book that I loved when I was eight. And I do remember very, very consciously thinking as I read Watership Down, all right, you know, 
my mum is right. This obviously is the best book ever. Uh, and one day I would really like to try and write, write something that's even half as good as this. And I think that's the first moment I can remember where I very, very consciously thought of myself as potentially being a writer as well as being a reader. You know, um, it sort of set this goal or ambition that has just been with me ever since. You know, I just thought, OK, well, I had some years in my teens where I, I think I wanted to be a rock star. Obviously it's very good. That didn't work out for everybody concerned, <laughs> but even then what I was really into was the songwriting, you know, mm. and there were often some kind of narrative elements in the songs. So I think it's always writing has always been what I would have identified as what I wanted to do. And that, that certainly goes back to Watership Down. So yeah, that one kind of shaped me uh, uh, levels. I'm still trying to, understand yeah. i've reread it i think five or six times now i sort of look at it every few years and every time i i find more you know the, it's sort of just endless it's kind of infinite so whenever kids ask me what's your favorite book that's the one i that's tell the them one. yeah i love i love books like that i mean i feel like that but i wonder is it is it the age you first encountered it you know eight seems to be the age for me too where i set you know seven eight I encountered uh, Little Prince, I encountered Elidor by Alan Garner um, and, you know, books that just went into my soul and and have and are still there and I st that I still reread. I reread them quite regularly. I, I used to make it an, an ambition to reread them both once a year. I don't I don't keep to that anymore. But in my 20s, even I was I was rereading Elidor nearly every single summer, kind of in, you know, August, because that's when I first I first read it. Um, and I just felt as though I was learning something new from it every time I read it. I was finding depths I had I had I hadn't yet encountered every time I opened the pages even though it's such a small you know slim volume there was so much in it that uh that I was learning from it both about what I wanted to do with my own life and and also the power of of, of a story so I, I wonder is it is it that is it that age and, and is I wonder is that why we're drawn to write to for kids around that age too I don't know it is, is an interesting age, age. Eight yeah. Is, yeah I think around eight kids do change don't they sort of before then they're kind of like one kind of thing and after that <laughs> they're another kind of thing uh you know some a bit earlier some a bit later yeah, but yeah. You know, around eight is often when um there's a certain kind of level of you know sophistication or imagination or mm. you know capability that that comes into focus and yeah maybe that is why a lot of writers will tell you about not just writers, just a lot of people will tell mm -hmm. you about things they read around the age of eight that have a particularly important place for them um, and they feel did connect in in some very, very deep way. I mean, I certainly feel like Watership Down, although, yeah, it's hardly the first, is it? But it, it certainly feels like the deepest, you know. Um, mm. So, yes, it might well have something to do with the age. I mean, also, you know, if you put Watership Down side by side with The Cat in the Hat, they're very different kinds of texts. Like, I mean, although, yes, the cat in the yeah. hat contains so much, you know, um, it's a 500 page book that, you know, he's really, he puts the whole of life in that book, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it's incredibly sophisticated and multi-layered. And, you know, as a kid, you're seeing this exciting adventure about rabbits. As an adult, I think there's almost nothing that isn't in Watership Down. You know, it's, politics philosophy but also ecology mm -hmm. ecology you know it's it's kind of <laughs> the, the levels just keep going you know i'll be very interested to see what it seems like to me the older i get i think that's mm. going to be 
quite interesting. Um, I've certainly noticed already a, a kind of a, a shift in, in how I, I, I read that and other books as well. Um, so yeah, this is they, they they kind of reveal themselves uh, in different ways depending on where you are. And it seems like the book is different, but it, it's not. It's the same thing, same object even. I'm reading the same copy of Warship Down I had mm -hmm. when I was eight. It's got my eight-year-old scroll in front of it, you know. That's so but, cute. Yeah, but it's me that's different, you know. <laughs> so but there it is, you know. I mean, a book actually, the object might exist, but it, it doesn't really come to life until a reader brings it to life in their mm -hmm. own mind. And because the mind is different every time, the book is different every time yeah so mm. I think yeah that's kind of magic isn't it <laughs> it is magic it's mad and considered that uh, I don't know what do authors uh, did, did did Richard Adams did he think about that when he was writing <laughs> Watership Down did he did he did he try to put all those layers in or or is it just I don't know it's, it's he got it out is, of his own it's, way it's yeah that must be it <laughs> maybe maybe it's, I mean I was lucky enough to meet him I was lucky you? oh yeah. amazing wow. yeah, about that. just um the reason I reread Warship Down at 35 um, at the time, so before Barge Out was published, I was kind of working as a journalist and I was doing a lot of interviews mm -hmm. uh, with like writers and filmmakers and people I liked. And I, mm -hmm. I pitched the idea of a Richard Adams interview because I think it was going to be the 30th anniversary of the publication of Warship Down. Um, so, yeah, I got to meet him and um, I asked him about the Arabic thing because actually there are a mm. few, quite a few words in warship down which looked a lot like arabic to me and he was well yes that's uh yes absolutely i was stationed in palestine during the war and wow. uh, i found arabic fascinating i learned some arabic and mm -hmm. i came to write my rabbit language of lapine arabic was <laughs> a big part of it so yeah i don't think he ever thought that around the time he was writing that there was a kid being born who was gonna oh. uh, read that and feel oh my goodness you know that's mm. You know, no, he just kind of liked the way the Arabic sounded and looked and, you know, he felt it was appropriate for his story. But, yeah, it did have that effect on me. And uh, to some extent, I feel like he passed something on to me. He kind of gave me a gift in a way, you know, yeah. and then I've tried to pass on things that I, I got from him, you know, and, and it, it sort of goes on in a, a great, a great cycle. And I sometimes feel like we're all just sort of links in a chain you know we're just mm. we get you know we're handed something and we try to hand it on as best we can maybe adding something of our own on the way but yeah all of us uh we can probably trace back you know beyond history to the to the earlier storytellers and who knows in the future where that's going to go but all you can do i guess is pass it on as best you can and that's yeah. what we're trying to do be the strongest link you can be when it's your turn <laughs> I guess yeah yeah god this is such a fascinating conversation I'm so glad you got to meet Richard Adams um so I I, I often wished when I was younger uh, that I could have met Antoine de Saint-Exupéry um oh wow because when I learned about his fate you know that he, how he disappeared you know lost in action or whatever and just I got so sad you know thinking I felt like I had lost somebody in my family somebody that I that I had a, a deep connection to in my head I just wished I could have told him how much I learned from his book how much it, how much it meant to me um to read The Little Prince um and it, yeah it really shaped me profoundly too in terms of even learning about what's important you know that in all the universe in all in all of in all of creation all this boy wants is to keep his rose safe you know and how that's all all that she means so much to him 
and I just I love that I love that lesson and I love that image and um I just wish I could have told him that but maybe on some level he can hear me so Antoine thank you so much for your wonderful story <laughs> oh I would add um, yeah sure no I mean I was I was lucky enough to be able to do that you know I said mm. at the end of the interview I said to Richard Adams you know your book meant so much to me I've actually ended up writing my own oh, and uh, uh and he said oh I, I would love to read it I think Varjat was just about to go into proofs at that point it hadn't yet been published so I said, oh, I'll send you a, 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 a proof if you like and he said oh yes I should very much like that I thought he was just being polite so yeah we sent him a of all Jack Poor, and then sometime later, I was stunned to receive this letter from Richard Adams, in which he actually used the word "brilliant" about Wall Jack. Oh, oh my gosh, that's amazing! Oh. Yeah, no, one of the most extraordinary things ever. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure Antoine would say quite the same to you. Oh, I like so. <laughs> I don't know if I have reached your level yet, SF. I think <laughs> I'm only trotting behind you, but uh, we're, we'll get there eventually. Um, but how does it feel? I wanted to ask you about working with Dave McKean, uh, you know, the illustrator, because I know you've talked a bit about comics and how they were such a formative mm. influence on you. Yeah. But of course, he's he's a person with such an incredible legacy and lineage of, of working with graphic novels. You know, he's he's an incredible artist. Um, how was it working with him? And how did that kind of, was that a, was that a thing your publisher did put it together? Or did you, did you, did you ask for Dave McKean to be your illustrator? How did it work? Can you tell us? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, with the comics, um, I guess as I, as I got older, you know, into my teens, you know, I did carry on reading comics. Um, mm -hmm. And then there was this fantastic wave of um, comics in the, in the late 80s, which mm. was much more adult. Yeah. Um, so writers like Neil Gaiman and Grant uh -huh. Britton, um, Arch Spiegelman and you know all sorts uh, were appearing. So Dave McKean seemed to be involved in in quite a few of these. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> yeah. His, his art really just took my breath away. Mm. I mean, I think the first time I was conscious of it was on the cover of the Sandman. Yes, which was, you know, a, a massive thing for me. And I guess it was in the late eighties, early nineties. Um, I was really, really taken with that, and every. A uh, month would be in the comic shop demanding the new one. And <laughs> uh, and Dave was producing this comic of his own called Cages, which he wrote and illustrated. And it's an amazing thing, uh, which I would recommend to anybody. Uh, and in among Cages, there was this, I think, you know, maybe good half a dozen pages with no dialogue, just these pictures of a cat going up and down a fire escape in a block yeah. of flats. Mm -hmm. looking in at people's windows and oh, it was just uh really amazing and i remember around that time finishing finally the 17th draft of varjack Paul. we can talk more about that if you want and uh, <laughs> my amazing publisher david fickling saying okay no no you've done very well the words are in good shape now what do you think about illustration who draws cats well and i was like oh god well there's this guy dave mckean he's just <laughs> an amazing comic with this cat and you know but i don't think he does children's books and you know why would he do mine uh and but david fickling said no no we shall send it to him and the worst that can happen is he'll say no so yeah he sent um dave mckean bar jack paul and uh <laughs> they then read it with his daughter who was at school at the time and their cat, who by coincidence <laughs> happened to be a silver blue cat with amber eyes, like Varjak. Like Varjak, wow. <laughs> but apparently they, they all liked it because he then mm. got in touch and said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to draw some cats for you. And so I ended up working with like my favourite artist. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm I know I'm incredibly lucky. Uh, that's 
not always the case with authors you, you know you don't always mm. get to work with who you want to work with um at the beginning I think I was just in awe you know I just mm. sort of sat there gibbering <laughs> about <laughs> how brilliant he was you know yeah. and he sort of looked a bit embarrassed and you know mm. um and so with Varjak I can't claim any real credit for anything apart from saying I think Dave McKean would do a great job mm, of it because mm-hmm. you know we literally gave him a word document and it came back looking as it does in the book fully illustrated you know this idea that the real world would have this kind of quite hard black and white look but mm-hmm. then when Jack dreams it goes into this sort of soft wash and the images begin to come through behind the text and all of that's just Dave you know I, I have nothing to do with uh, apart from just when when he showed it to us just going wow yeah no that's yeah. Right. I'll do. I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, over the years we've, you know, I guess we we done four books now. We also had a lot of adventures trying to get a Varjak Paul movie made, which still hasn't happened, but many adventures. And so I guess we became friends as well as collaborators. And so on each book, I think it became more of a kind of a collaboration in that I would sort of save up material, which I would then present him with at the end. Um, and sometimes in Phoenix, uh, I actually sort of designed sequences going, OK, we would need an illustration here. We would need an illustration that, you know, broadly, this would be this kind of god <laughs> or star or whatever. Um, so, you know, each book has been different, but I would say the conversations and the collaborations have got sort of deeper and richer as time has gone on. And I feel like as a Dave McKean fan, it's a bit weird to say this, but I, I mean, I think the art he's done in Tiger mm. is some of the best he's ever done, you know. It's, it's phenomenal, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. He made such a, the work in Tiger, like, I mean, I love his work in all of your books, but I mean, Tiger is is a step above a man. It's, it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's, it's, such a, it's such a work of art, that book, you know, everything about it is just top notch, <laughs> you know, but I, I just, I love that idea that you just literally suggested him to your publisher and he said, yeah, we'll try it and see. I guess it just, it does pay off to, cast your net off into the universe sometimes and see but what I think back. that's the lesson here is like just ask yeah, just see ask. what happens yeah. like the worst that can happen is people will say no but you you won't have the opportunity unless you suggest the possibility Absolutely. it's always, it's always yeah. worth raising it um I mean I was lucky that David Fickling listen David Fickling then was uh, you know I think when he saw what Dave did on Varjak Paul I think before that he had been well, let's see. And then when he saw, saw the stuff coming in, like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So he's been very happy for that collaboration to continue and, you know, because he can see just how brilliant it is. Um, but I think David Fickling is quite an unusual publisher in, in many, many respects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he genuinely wants to make the best books possible. Um, so he's been completely supportive with that. Um and I just feel very lucky with both David Fickling and Dave McLean. <laughs> you know, I work with people who share my desire or ambition to make the books the very best they can be. They can be. Well, it's amazing. I'm glad. I'm glad that that your your triumvirate has come into being because uh, yeah. uh, you know you've you've made some amazing books together. Um, and I, I suppose we sort of ask question as well like do you, do you see yourself as a shaper of stories for future generations of readers or I mean how how do you or how would you hope that your stories would shape your readers um do you have any thoughts on that yeah I to be honest I don't really because I think mm. every reader is different and mm-hmm. you know the experiences they have are unique to them 
Um, I don't know that it's necessarily for me to say how I would like them to experience a book or take something away from it. All I would want is for them to approach it with an open mind, in, engage with it, uh, and see what happens. You know, I think the more open to it they are, the more they're likely to get out of it. But um, yeah, people take all sorts of different things from stories. I mean, this is something I think I feel more and more the the more I do. You know, if you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, I might have given you a very different answer. Um, but I think, I mean, looking back at my own kind of reading history, um, the, the sort of the next really big development is probably in, in university where um, my friends and I had something of a second childhood uh, <laughs> and started reading and rereading children's books as as university students and deciding these were much better and richer and deeper than anything we could find in the world of grown-up books uh and uh, you know and we started swapping and exchanging and as at that time um i was given ursula Le Guin's a wizard of earthsea as a gift Brilliant. Brilliant. and that's another great um you know life-changing life-shaping work-shaping story for me i mean earthsea more than any other book probably kind of helped me to decide this is the kind of thing I want to try and do mm -hmm. um, I think before then I'd had this general idea of writing uh, and I think in my teens I you know was very much wanting to be a grown-up and you know <laughs> childhood is kind of embarrassing but then at a university and then reading Earthsea you know, you know actually you know what this stuff has more it has more than stuff that wins the Booker Prize, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and, and I think it really helped me decide what kind of book is it I want to write. And I, I think one thing I really believe is that the books that we call children's books are books that are written for an audience that includes children, but excludes nobody. They are books for everyone, you know, and I I love that. I think that's so exciting and empowering as a writer, this idea you're writing for everyone. And so somebody could read it at the age of eight and get a certain amount of stuff out of it. But then they could read it at 18 and get another bunch of stuff. And maybe at 48, it would be another bunch of stuff again, you know, and uh, and those readings could kind of resonate and echo against each other as you got older and in the way that say the watership down readings do for mm -hmm. me now um so yeah i think you can't say as a writer like okay if you're this age i want you to get this if you know no, you've just i think what i try and do is put everything i know everything i've got everything i love into each and every book make it as accessible as possible as exciting as possible as page turny as possible mm -hmm. so that um as many people as possible will be able to engage with it but then it's for them to engage at whatever level in whatever way feels right to them, you know? Um, and I think there was a whole wave of books that began to appear then in the nineties, as I was starting to try and write my own books for everyone, mm -hmm. you started to get books by people like Philip Pullman, mm -hmm. Dark Materials Trilogy, Northern Lights, Subtle Knife, Mallory Blackman's Noughts and Crosses, you know, books yeah. like that. Um, I think they they kind of confirmed for me this idea of books for everyone, that this is what we're trying to do. You know, um, a book like Skellig, 
you know, mm. David Armand Skellig. I mean, yeah. I mean, again, I, I think you could probably read that in so many different ways, at so many different ages, you know, um, books that just resonate uh, in multiple directions and dimensions. Uh, so, yeah, that became very much the objective, you know, try, try and write <laughs> books for everyone. But I think the corollary of that is that you have to get out of the way again. As a writer, you, you can't prescribe what is it people are going to get out of this. You know, you just have to try and create a matrix <laughs> within which they can bring their stuff. And then each Magic and every person you know, you're going to have a different experience, you know, yeah. but it will be unique to them uh, and hopefully meaningful to them in the way that perhaps our favorite stories are meaningful to us. You hope, you know, that's the hope. That'd be the dream, wouldn't it? Yeah, for no, sure. Exactly. <laughs> um, and we like to ask as well, uh, what stories are shaping you right now? Do you have anything that you're reading at the moment that's particularly good or that you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, I mean, well, so last year, my my favourite children's book of the year was Catherine Johnson's Journey Back to Freedom, yeah. which is um, retelling of Alauda Equiano's autobiography. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a fantastic book and really should be read by everybody uh I, I i love that book so um this year we're still in the middle of the year so i can't yet state favorite <laughs> children's book of the year but my most recent uh would be that as for what i'm currently reading right now at the moment i'm on a quite sort of odd um slightly baffling even to me uh kind of quest uh i think at the moment what i'm really interested in i started i just picked up this book of c.s lewis uh, essays and I, I just started reading them and it just sort of opened up something some kind of project uh, so I've ended up I've read I've been reading Tolkien's letters Lewis's autobiography and what I'm looking for is what did they read that shaped them oh, yeah. you know I think of like Narnia Middle Earth you know Lord of the Rings they're almost kind of at the beginning of what it is we're doing now you know they feel like very foundational texts mm. but they didn't come out of nowhere what sure. was it what was it that those writers read that shaped them so that's what i'm really interested in right now so i've been following these various kind of threads and trails back um so it, this year i've been reading george Macdonald, who's uh, a scottish 19th century writer mm. uh so he wrote some incredible children's books some of the first that you would really think of as specifically being children's books princess and the goblin Princess and Curdie, they're amazing. I think Princess and the Goblin stands up incredibly well. Um, it also writes some kind of adult fantasies that are really important in the history of fantasy literature in general. Uh, William Morris, who's best known oh, for yeah. designs, he wrote these kind of weird sort of pseudo-medieval kind of sub-Mallory fantasies. So wow. I've been reading some of that. Um, there's a guy called Lord Dunsany, who's an Irish writer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we know him. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Dunsany's stories, they're unbelievable. Um, you know, and you, I'm reading this stuff and feeling very... Um, I see the roots of a lot of things that I, I like in this stuff from 100 years ago or more. Um, there's all sorts, you know, I could go on and on and on. But um, uh, I think the the, the kind of the, the roots of fantasy literature in general and children's literature 
particularly are, are currently very, very interesting to me. So I'm not reading a lot of contemporary stuff right at this moment. I'm very much 100 years ago or more. That's sort of... That's amazing. Wow. And I, can't, I can't really explain it. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, a moment's going to come when I, I, I'll have had enough. Well, um, go where the muse brings you, I guess. I love and, those. I love those quests that you don't understand why you're on yeah, them, but you know that you know you've got to go. You're searching for <laughs> yeah. something and you just yeah. have to yeah. follow the paths. And, exactly. Yeah, they're exactly the best right. Yeah. You just yeah. follow the energy wherever it takes mm, you. Yeah. And I don't think you should necessarily judge it or overthink mm. it. Um, I, I, mean, I don't feel that I, I can. I, I, I feel very much like I just follow it, but it feels very, very connected to the writing, like the, the, the reading and the writing are two parts of the same activity in some way. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just following it wherever it goes, wherever it might go next. You know, there've been all kinds of phases. Uh, <laughs> this is just where I am right now. You know, it, ask me again in six months, it'll be somewhere it'll else. It'll be something different, exactly. <laughs> um, and we always like to ask too, if people can tell us this, I mean, sometimes people are not allowed to, but, um, what's next from you in terms of upcoming projects? I mean, I suppose, I wonder, my, my cheeky question is, is your current reading feeding into something that you're working on or is it just purely you're just feeling out? Or can uh, you tell us? Or can you tell us? <laughs> it's definitely, definitely feeding into what I'm writing. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's brilliant. So, as for what it is that I'm writing, I can't really tell you anything about that because, you know, as I as I might have sort of hinted, you know, I write <laughs> many, many drafts yeah. of books. So. Mm -hmm. You know, Varjak Paul was 17 drafts. Um, Tiger did take nine years. So I find the thing that I'm... very reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> I find it very embarrassing. I, no, I every, be... like I'm no, very, no. very reassured by that. It's that like, because I feel like I'm, I'm doing the same thing. I don't know. It is what it is. Everybody is different. You know, mm. you can't prescribe how you work or how the stuff comes out of you. You know, I just, I feel like if I show up every day, I put in a, a decent shift, you know, that's all I can do <laughs> on a given day. Yeah. And then how many days it's going to take, you know, I don't know. Uh, it's not really up to me to decide that. If I finish a book, well, all that's going to happen is I'm going to be writing on another book. So my day-to-day -day experience isn't really all that different. So I try really hard not to get too hung up on how long it takes. But yeah, I mean, what does happen is it changes a lot. So... And I mean a lot. So, I mean, with mm. Tiger at one point, I remember David Fickling saying to me, uh, you've got the most wonderful story here. You know, all the beats are, are there. It, it's uh, all you need to do, I think, is is uh, change the, the world, change the <laughs> time period, change the main character, change all the other characters. But, but other that, <laughs> and that's marvellous. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. Uh, so Tiger went through at least three completely different worlds mm -hmm. before it arrived at the world that you, you see in the published book. And the main character, well, he only became Adam Alhambra, I don't know, maybe a year or two before I finished writing the book. So if I were to tell you anything about what I'm doing now, it will almost certainly be wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah but I am I'm excited about it. I feel like I think the more you do something, the better you get at it, hopefully. Uh I think each mm -hmm. time I want to try and push myself further, do something bigger. Uh so not necessarily longer, but maybe you know, more mm. infinite. Uh, so, yeah, 
it'll take as long as it takes. What I do know about the previous books is it always felt worth it in the end, even if it was nine years, because Tiger is the book I would most want to read myself. If I could have any book that that's what I want. It's got everything I want in a book. Well, not quite anymore because I'm now in a slightly different place. Mm. Uh, so mm. the thing I'm trying to write now is the book that I would most want to read right now. But when I was writing Tiger, it was the thing I most wanted to read then that kind of brought everything I'm interested in together in one place. Fantastic. Oh. What a great, what a great inspirational, I suppose, process, you know, that you, you write the book that you really want to read at that time. That's really, that's actually really inspired me. It's gone very deep because I'm yeah. working on a book at the moment that has a lot of Irish folklore in it. Stuff that means a lot to me personally, stuff that's very deep in, in my psyche or my DNA, my core or whatever. Mm. So it's great to have the opportunity to write a story that you know you would have loved to, to read when you were young, but also a story that you would love to read now. Um, do you read do you read a lot of kids' books? I mean, would they be your main or do you do you ever stray into adult books when you're when you're reading for pleasure yourself? Tessa? I mean, as I say, right now, you know, I'm in this, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Lord Dunsany, very much not for children, you know. Mm. <laughs> Uh, so, so it depends where I am you know I have periods where I read nothing but children's books uh I have periods where you know there are sometimes I've got six different things on the go you know and it, it's you can't really classify like one of them is non-fiction one of them is poetry there might be some comics I mean you know it could be anything fantastic <laughs> <laughs> um but unfortunately we have reached uh the hour which is usually when we sort of try and wrap things up even though as we say to most of our guests or all of our guests we could talk to you all day because books and the love of books are something I think we all share, all the guests we've had on, um, primarily, you know, uh, yourself in particular, you know, that we have such a love for books that we feel we could speak to you forever. Um, but we better we better bring things uh, bring things to a conclusion. But um, I just want to say thanks so much for being here. It's really just something that we have hoped for for a long time to get mm -hmm. you on the podcast. Um, and uh, speaking to you has been as much of a joy as I knew, as I hoped and knew that it would be. Um, so thank you so much for your time today, SF, and for your your generosity and for your uh, your insights your into the story, your wisdom. Yeah, and your insights wisdom, into all the stories yeah. that have shaped you. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been a total pleasure, and you know, good luck with the new thing you're writing. I really do think you should try and write if you could have any any story at all you know mm. what would it be what do you secretly most want yourself to be in a story that you're reading and then you just shamelessly put that story <laughs> um and if you love it you know other people will love it too uh I hope so yeah. yeah. Well, at the very least it will help you keep going the story mm. itself will help you keep going through True. the end work yeah. that you yes. need to do to make a yeah. story something someone else can read so, yeah yeah good luck with it thanks very much thank you so much and uh, i don't need to wish you good luck because you're fantastic but uh if anyone is listening who hasn't read SF, sf's books yet i couldn't recommend them more highly particularly um you know his most recent book tiger which is just uh, an exceptional piece of work a uh, masterpiece um but i'm looking forward to your new whatever whatever you come up with next uh, it's going to be just as amazing i'm sure um but thank you listener for being with us um and if you've enjoyed this episode which i hope you have um, please do take a second to rate and review us on your streamer of choice um, and uh, thank you once again to the fantastic SF Saeed for being with us today it's been a joy um, and may you continue to enjoy your quest exactly <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> so bye everybody until next time you've been listening to Story Shaped with Susan Cahill and Sinead O'Hart follow us on Twitter at Story Shaped Pod and don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode. Music by Tony Betts. <laughs>